Poya. This is Robbie. Welcome to Uncharted and Eclectic. And thanks for joining us again. So glad that you could join us. For the folks that don't know you, that have lived on the rock, do you mind maybe kicking off with your personal bio mixed in there? Is it some business bio as well? Yeah, sure. So I, uh, Patrick Campbell, CEO, founder of a company called ProfitWell. Um, on the personal side, I, I grew up in Wisconsin um, in a town with more cows than people before uh, school in Illinois, uh, studying economics, and then um, you know worked in D.C. in the Intel community for a bit. Uh, then moved to Boston for the last 10 years where I, um, you know, worked at Google and some other tech companies. And then um, for the past seven and a half years working on ProfitWell. And what we do at ProfitWell is we basically plug into, you know, your billing system, uh, Stripe, Zorro, whatever you're using. Um, and we give you a bunch of tools for subscription revenue automation. Um, so we work with a lot of SaaS companies, subscription e-commerce, uh, subscription media, et cetera. And um, yeah, kind of our claim to fame is we, we have about 20% of the entire subscription market using ProfitWell. So uh, at least our free tool. And so we just have a lot of like insight into what's happening in, in the greater SaaS space um, or in subscription space. So yeah, that's the rambly version. And uh, yeah, you and I know each other a little bit. So I'm more than happy to go deeper in anywhere else uh, that you think is relevant to the group. No, very relevant. Great, great uh, context right off the bat. I think the thing that people don't know is uh, you've been very successful at starting in the public market or at least going after governments and then you moved over to the startup land in Boston and then finally decided to start your own thing as CEO and founder and, and the rest has been history. But one of the questions to kick off uh, for the group is as a lot of people are in this weird circle, maybe they've been laid off, maybe they're in their job and they're not happy, maybe they're thinking about a career change. Uh, you've had a couple, right? Like going from different stages. What practical advice or framework or tactical insights has helped you make those decisions? Anything you care to share? Yeah, I think, so this is really, because it's it's been kind of a progression, right? I think that anyone who has all these out of the gate are, you know, freaks of nature <laughs> and probably aren't, aren't being honest with themselves in the early days. I think that for me, there's been, you know, the first couple of things that come to mind, I think that one really, really big thing that's helped me, um, not only in just in my life, but just in, in the career so far and being a founder has been this whole concept of the most charitable interpretation principle. So th what this basically means, and definitely didn't make this up myself, but, uh, you know, when, when you're dealing with someone, whether it's a competitor, a vendor, um, a team member, a founder, co-founder, whatever it is, um, you want to assume that whatever they're coming to you with is, um, you know, that they may be right. Um, and then just like, make sure you assume that they're a smart person. Um, and the reason for that is because I think that when, when you're moving very quickly and in a very stressful environment with very uh, information, high information density, it's really easy to, you know, get upset with someone or, you know, just kind of assume what they're talking about and then argue with them. And an hour later, you realize you made the wrong assumption and that you just kind of argued for no reason, but you're still digging your, 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 you know, heels in or even, you know, oh, it's a competitor, screw them. And, and I think it's more, it's been so much easier to both learn, um, but also be effective um, from an emotional perspective, as well as just like from an intellectual perspective by whenever I'm dealing with someone, you know, initially thinking, hey, they might have a point, they might be smart or they are smart, they, they might have a point um, and maybe I'm wrong, right? And I think that that's helped a lot. And at the end of those conversations, you can still realize, oh, they do have bad intentions or they do, you know, they, they don't know what they're talking about, but you at least like had the conversation. And then 
The other really, really big one, um, and I'm happy to go deeper on either of these, is this whole concept of like problem cause solution. Um, I think that when you're facing with problems and when you're at a startup, you're, you're facing, especially as a first time founder myself, like you're facing so many different things that you've never dealt with. Um, in addition to those, you're, you're dealing with plenty of things that maybe you have dealt with or you have a competitive advantage in terms of your knowledge base, but there's still you know, details that are so different. And a lot of people, what they do is they go through this like freak out cycle of executive emotion where they just kind of go, oh, holy cow, like this is going to be terrible. Everything's bad. Let's just throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and see how we can fix it, right? You know, growth isn't working. Uh, oh my gosh, let's just throw a bunch of stuff at it. Let's like read three blog posts and just implement the things they said um, or, you know, certain HR things, et cetera. And I think the problem is, is that when you break things down, and I know that sounds super basic to some folks, but if you think about it, you can't solve a problem. If growth is bad, there's got to be a cause to why growth's bad. Are you not getting enough traffic? Are you not getting the right leads? Are your sales teams not closing those leads? But even just there with those three things, like I'm breaking down what are the root causes? And then when you evaluate those causes, you can look at, well, this looks like the biggest problem. We don't have problems in these areas or you know, these causes aren't big enough then you can effectively solve that, that problem by solving for the cause. And I think that that framework has been super, super helpful. And, and we kind of all naturally do this as humans, but when we're faced with some things that are a little bit more um, emotional or kind of reactive, we don't take a, take a beat to you know, pause and think through, okay, what is this user trying to really get in the support ticket? Or what's this big existential thing that we have to figure out? And I think that's been a really good intellectual framework that's helped me a lot. Um, just through a lot of problems that I've never faced before. And then even problems that, you know, have, have become bigger and bigger or, you know, have become, you know, more and more existential for the, you know, growth and thriving of, of ProfitWell. I love it. I love it. Very actionable, tactical as well. The only thing I'll add in there that's, that's helped me uh, along the same lines is uh, begin with the end in mind, right? Like yeah. whether it's a user or whoever and like work your way backwards. But I, I, I love how tactical you're getting right off the bat. One quick question, and I'd love to just hear from your perspective. Look, sometimes when you're in the early stage, right, or in, in the middle of any problem, there is this balance between anecdotes, right? Like whether you're a marketer or product and like performance, like the data of things, right? And sometimes the anecdotes, right? Like what you hear from users, uh, frankly, like go the complete opposite way of like what the data shows, right? And it can be really hard if you're in sales and marketing and you're going back and forth with a very technical founder, like to have that balance. Yeah. The reason I bring that up is like some, some days I go through that like day by day. So I, it, I'm sure you've been through it much more than I have. So like, how have you learned to balance that? How have you balanced, frankly, like the combination between anecdotes and performance slash data? Yeah, I think, I think the first, and I have a very disagreeable uh, CPO. <laughs> Um, and, and I think that we, we oftentimes look at disagreeableness as, you know, a crutch or a, um, a vice. And actually, it's, it's a huge virtue. And I'm, I'm not, you know, that, that agreeable myself. But then we have someone on the other side of the spectrum, like Peter, who, you know, um, who's, who's a lot more agreeable, and he kind of leads sales and revenue. And so I think that the first thing is, is realizing that that, that is coming from a really good place. And you want those people inside your business because you want them challenging you on what you should be doing, um, what, what the framework should be and, and, and kind of everything in between. And that's kind of what solves the, solves the problem here because that person comes to you and, and there is no data or there is data that kind of suggests in, in a certain direction or not. And if you have disagreeable people and agreeable people involved, 
as assuming that you look at that as a positive thing and those people are intellectually honest, because I think that's the biggest thing. Um, intellectual honesty, it doesn't mean like if you're, if you're not being intellectually honest, it doesn't mean you're a dishonest person. It just means maybe you're being clouded by the emotions of it, the passion of it. You're, you really have a, you know, a big, you know, kind of um, care about certain things. But I think that what, what ends up happening is if you're intellectually honest in these conversations, you start to realize what are the limits of this data? So we might have some data that's suggesting one thing, but there's only two weeks of it. It's not definitive. Um, there's some reasons to believe that it's not like super, super strong or, or really, really correlated. And then all of a sudden what ends up happening is it's like, okay, well, you're looking at this data and I'm thinking the opposite because I think there's problems with the data. You're thinking the opposite of that because you think this data is actually really sound. We both know that neither of us have enough information to be 100% right. So then all of a sudden, like, what's the framework for the decision, right? Okay, let me think through. Okay, well, is this a big deal? Hey, we're just gonna throw out some ad copy. Mm, it's probably not a big deal at that point. Is this a huge deal? Like fundamentally, we're gonna spend eight weeks, you know, building something, um, you know, and that can get quite expensive, obviously. Or it could even be huge and it's like fundamentally going to change how we do our business. Well, if it's those larger things, then what's the framework of like right or wrong? Can we do a two-week test and get more data? Can we go out and collect more data, right? If I'm going to make an existential thing that's going to change the entire face of our business, kind of like what we did when we made ProfitWell free, I'm going to go out and collect a lot more data because I want to make sure I'm making the right decision in the long run, or at least I'm hedging the decision as much as humanly possible. And then the final thing is like, what are you doing to hedge the decision? And that's kind of the, the other side of exactly what I'm saying, which is you're not going to be hundred percent right. And so if you know the limits of the data, you understand the gravity of the thing that you're trying to do and you're either setting up a testing period, um, which still might not be right, but you're thinking through that end as you're talking about and you're understanding, okay, well, if we see this in two weeks, this makes sense. If we see this, likely we're going to see something in the middle. So how do we continue to get more research or continue to collect data so that we can, you know, then make the best decision then it's about, you know, at that point, if everyone's intellectually honest and, and kind of understanding things, then it might come down to, well, whose domain is it? If it's a product decision, like even if I feel really strongly in the opposite direction, if we've gone through this exercise, I'm gonna let Facunda make the decision because he's closer to it and he also has to live with the consequences of it, right? If it's a you know, sales decision, same thing with Peter. And so I think that's the big thing is sometimes you just have to trust the team to make those decisions. And if you've gone through that intellectually honest path, you then realize like, okay, well, they did the best they could and we're going to be wrong sometimes um, and we're going to be right other times. And as long as we're right on bigger things than we're wrong on, um, it's fantastic. And I think that when, when this becomes really, really difficult to kind of end on, on this point is they're unconventional, like, I can't remember the Bezos quote, but it's so right. It's like, you know, the something along the lines of like, you know, unconventional things is when you get, you know, outsized returns. But the problem with unconventional like paths is they're wrong a lot of, a lot of times, right? And so it's like, how do, you, how do you square that? Well, sometimes you have to make big swings and you have to look at the data that you have an inkling for and just be comfortable with those things failing. And so you got to dare to fail gloriously, as they say, which I think is a, is a big piece of this as well. And yeah, this is a perfect transition to kind of what my next question was. Uh, look, I think you've come a long way from like making profit well free in this freemium model, right? Like for your business. I don't mm -hmm. think you wanted to start off that way, right? And I've had, frankly, a lot of it is because of COVID, right? Like at least for the companies I'm consulting and, and like working with, I'm making a push like, hey, if you can't get revenue, get some sort of an engagement, even yep. if it's for free, because you want that engagement from the audience and then you can monetize on it down the line. Like, Talk to us a little bit about your journey and ProfitWell's journey about how that decision was made, like as much tactical advice you can get in a concise way, like why you guys made the shift. And frankly, like 
which do you think is the right way of thinking for businesses? Yeah, I, I think you first need to understand what you're trying to accomplish with free. And, and you kind of alluded to this, this beautifully, but the, the model I really like to kind of reference is this, this thing that Christopher O'Donnell at HubSpot, he's the CPO over there, um, came up with, um, or at least kind of evangelizes, um, even if he didn't come up with it, but there's this whole concept of, of a river of leads and a pool of leads inside a business. The river of leads are events, uh, sales, uh, demand gen, these types of things that if you turn them off, um, the river dries up, right? There's no events. We're not getting any leads from events, right? Maybe webinars, but it's not the same, right? And then the other, the other side is the pool. These are things that if you turn them off, you're still going to, or if you don't focus on them, you're still going to attract leads. So like content and SEO is a big, big kind of portion of pooling. Um, you know, some people argue that in some areas, SEO is actually a river, which, you know, is totally true, but in most businesses, it's a pool. And then freemium is this pool of people that you can always access, right? And you're nurturing these leads. And so fundamentally what you're trying to do is you're trying to put the onus of conversion, not on an arbitrary amount of time in a free trial, not on a pushy salesperson where the sales cycle just might not be ready for that customer, but you're trying to put it on the customer. So if I get this user in the door and they're using my free product and I can put some limits, right? I can put a limit either using forever free, which is, you know, ProfitWell is, is completely free forever. Uh, but um, if you want to use some of our add-ons that help you make more money, those are the things you have to pay for. Um, or I can say, hey, you get 100x and 100 might be 100 opens, 100 visits, depending on the product that I have. And I set that 100 at the, the, the limit where my target customer is going to get through those 100 whatevers um, within 14 to 21 days. So it's kind of like a faux free trial, we call it. And so what that does is that user, when they come up to that 14 or 21 days, like the hundred, you know, opens or visits or whatever your, your limit is, they essentially have a decision of like, am I going to convert or am I not going to convert? And then at the beginning of the next month, I get a new hundred and then I'm reminded, oh yeah, there's value here. So all of a sudden, like months in a row, even if they don't convert, they're reminded of your value. And then eventually they're nurtured enough to actually convert, or maybe they weren't a good target customer but then they got that new sales job and they're like, oh, I need to track the opens um, of my emails because I want to make sure I understand like what's going on with certain you know, contracts and things like that. Therefore, now I'm going to be a customer. So that's kind of the philosophy of, of free and a very, very short missive. And so for us, what we ended up doing is, um, and, and to make a very long story short, we, have an, we started building this analytics product. Um, and this was the second product that we were building. And we were building it because you know, we were helping a company that was about to IPO with their pricing with our, our main product or, or used to be our core product. And we discovered they were calculating MRR and churn completely incorrectly. And so we calculated it, we figured it out. And we we're like, hey, this is a huge, huge idea. You know, subscription analytics, right? You know, we we're geniuses. That's what we thought. Well, all of a sudden, you know, like literally when we were about to launch, you know, a few weeks before that, this company called Metrics launched. A few weeks after that, a company called ChartMogul launched. Um, and then there's just like BI is a terrible, terrible space to like compete in because there's just hundreds and hundreds of different analytics or BI tools. Um, and this is why a lot of them go up market. Well, we looked at it, we started doing our research and what we realized was, hey, like the willingness to pay is really bad. The CAC is really, really bad. Um, and this is typically what you see in BI products. And we weren't in a position to go up market, meaning building for the enterprise, at least at the time. So we thought, okay, well, there's a lot of implications for free because we weren't necessarily going to monetize this in a great way because the willingness to pay just wasn't there. So we did, a, and we did that by doing a bunch of research and we discovered basically that, you know, it made more sense for us to give this away for free because we could nurture those leads to convert into our other products 
But in addition to that, we got a really good network effect of not only people referring other people into, into our sphere, but also they, you know, basically improved the algorithms of our paid products because of the data that we were sitting on. So that was like a really powerful thing for us. And that's what, you know, got us to, you know, 20% market share right now. And we're the number one in the space. Now, should you do free? Um, I think you should consider doing free like things right now. Um, because as you were kind of alluding to, Poya, whoever holds on to the most customers at the end of this is going to win. Um, and the way you get customers, you get prospects and leads. And this is a really, really good way to get a pool of leads for you to sit on, especially get a lot of goodwill when you're giving it away for free in some respect. Now, should you go full freemium? I think freemium is a scalpel. It's not a sledgehammer. Too many people think about it as a revenue model. It's really an acquisition model. You got to think about it like a premium ebook. You know, hey, I got this lead and I have to nurture them. So if you haven't, if you don't have anything that's even close to freemium, you probably should like just kind of hold off a second um, unless you're like kind of close to doing that. And then this is a time to kind of go all in, but you can extend your trials, especially if you're doing more traditional kind of enterprise or mid-market type contracts. Um, you can buy out your customer con or competitor contracts. We're seeing this in a really aggressive ways where they go, hey, incumbent, um, they're incumbent customer, like, you know, we know that you really want to use our product, but you have 10 months on your contract with the incumbent, you know, come to us for the next, you know, 10 months for free. Um, and then after that, we'll, we'll put you at this price point. And I think it's a really good opportunity to hold on to those leads, get more customers, and also get a lot of goodwill. Um, you got to be smart about it, but I think it's one of those things that a lot of people who are very anti-free, they don't understand like what you're actually trying to do with free. And that's why I wanted to kind of walk through it. But it is something that like, it has to be a very conscious effort. And, and I think it's one of those things that we're seeing a lot of people be really successful, whether they're going full freemium or doing something that's like freemium-like. The part that I loved about it is just, I think right now people should think about like watering the plant and hopefully you, you can benefit from uh, nurturing that plant in a yep. couple of months or in a couple of years. Uh, so as, as an analogy, I love that. Look, one of the things I've admired uh, about you as well as Peter and the ProfitWell team is not only have you folks done this the hard way, right? Like bootstrapping it this far um, and have brought on thousands of different customers across your product lines. But I see you and ProfitWell publish more content than anyone else I see out there uh, from a vendor company perspective. Um, how, did, how did you come up with that? Like, what did it take to kind of, like, I, I'm just curious, like, why have you prioritized that? And, and when did that light bulb moment come, like, to kind of put content and context as, like, a priority for not only you, but also as ProfitWell? Yeah. So the, the original story is, um, so when we started ProfitWell, um, it was just me, um, as, as, as the full-time guy. And, um, basically I, you know, cashed in my 401k, which was very small cause I was 25. Um, so it was like 10 grand and living in Boston. That's not great. Um, and then, um, we got a free HubSpot account. So it was one of those things where we were like, well, this, we don't really know what the product is exactly, but we know it's in this space and we have this content marketing thing and we're so, you know, kind of, um, you know, steeped in the HubSpot world in Boston, like, Hey, let's try this inbound marketing thing. And what we stumbled into and in, in, in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense. And I don't think I had this, you know, in foresight was, you know, we're in a space where not a lot of people know what's going on. Um, you know, pricing, you know, like not a lot of people understand it churn, like more people understand it, but not enough people are doing enough. Right. And then metrics, these are hard and benchmarks, these types of things. And so, you know, we started publishing things um, or I started publishing things on pricing and I didn't really go that deep. <coughs> Excuse 
Oh, sorry. Cardinal sin of podcasting is sneezing in the middle here. Sorry about that. But um, I didn't really go that deep because I didn't really have that depth of knowledge, but I started getting a lot of traction on, you know, writing some basic posts and the pricing guys and gals out there would be like, oh, this is so simple. <laughs> this is way too simple. But everyone else was like, oh my God, this is amazing. It helped me, right? So that was kind of the, the, the kernel. And then for a good, basically five years that it was just me blogging, um, we had some contractors, but not a lot. Like we didn't have an actual marketing team. And then about two years ago, we were, you know, maybe two and a half. We were like, oh, we know we need to ramp up growth and marketing. Um, what's the strategy we're going to use? Like what, what kind of people do we need to hire? And then I started doing some really, really deep research and started to discover that, um, and I have a bunch of data that I could share with, you know, whomever, um, basically discovering that the best folks in the world at content are media companies, right? You know, average, you know, kind of content or average, um, like visits or views per week, you know, are in like, you know, five to 10 range. Whereas like a B2B blog, it's typically less than one and a half. Um, so looked at that, looked at a bunch of other data and basically put together a framework of like, oh, well, content is obviously really important, but content isn't the key here right now. It was really good five, 10 years ago, and there's always going to be SEO implications that are great. But really what's happening in content is like, not only do you need to be quality, but you got to think more like a media company. And so that just changed our entire view of it, where we kind of doubled down on video, podcasting, um, basically creating shows, um, not creating posts. Um, and that's what helped us kind of like really ramp things up and then doing it really at scale. Um, and for us at scale meant we can't hire a team of 20 for a show, which is like what a media company would do. You know, we have like five people on our content team, which is a pretty big content team, but that's our, like our entire marketing team. Right. So that's, what's really interesting about it. And that's kind of how that came to be. And I think what we found is, you know, we, we want to be like a network. We want to think of ourselves as a network because that's what's going to drive a lot of these good decisions for bringing people into the fold. In addition to doing good SEO posts and things like that. And for what companies, I, I would say most people listening are probably in e-commerce or SaaS. Uh, for what companies do you think it makes sense to think like a media company? Like, where do you think is your threshold of like, hey, once you have these criteria as like, this is when I would double down. And frankly, I don't know what it mean, what it sound, like, what it means to be a media company or think yeah. of your content as a media. Like, elaborate a little more for the rookies like me. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, so the basic concept is, is that, you think about building audience, um, not building just visits and leads. And I think that's the big thing because, you know, leads and visits and stuff like that, there are very, very known playbooks, but it's getting harder and harder to build visits and leads, not for every vertical, not for every topic. Um, but there's also like, you know, SaaS metrics, there's, there's not a ton of traffic. Like we're not talking about e-commerce level traffic here. And so we want to build audience. And that's really the distinction is like, how do I build an audience who then, you know, tweets stuff, is fervent, is super comfortable when I like reach out to them to sell them on something and is at least going to get on the demo or the opportunity call. Um, like that's really the focus. And then mechanically what that means is, is, you know, the way to build an audience is not just through like really good, rich, like, you know, SEO posts, but to, you know, have a podcast on different topics. So we have a show that's called Pricing Page Teardown where Peter and myself, and there's going to be some new, new hosting changes that are going to happen. We break down on a weekly basis, a um, collect a bunch of data on a pricing page. We look at that pricing page. We talk about what could be better about the pricing strategy, what's actually really good about the pricing strategy. Um, and all of a sudden, like, we have like, when we're in season, we're out of season right now. And that we have like 40,000 people who watch that show a month, 
which again, it's not Bloomberg level traffic, but for SaaS and for such a niche topic like pricing, um, that's fantastic, right? And so then what we did is we have multiple other shows, right? So if I was a company, I think that everyone should think about themselves as a media company because the effectiveness of content is still high, but it is going down. Um, again, there's some caveats to that, but you don't have to go all in like we are. Like you gotta make sure you have a podcast. You gotta make sure you have maybe even a video series if you wanna go into video, but maybe you start with just a weekly written series that loops people in. Maybe it's a daily newsletter, a weekly newsletter, um, you know, kind of like the Mattermark Daily of old or some of the other big um, newsletters that are popping up here like the Morning Brew and things like that. Um, and at the very least, like get into some media, whether it's podcasting or video because the CAC implications of folks who, you know, listen to a podcast before they buy and these types of things, their acquisition costs are actually much, much lower than those folks who come through other channels. And so I think it, to me, it was more of a really easy hedge because it was like, well, if this completely fails, what did we do? We created great content um, or at least better than average content. Like that's worth the squeeze as long as I'm not like, you know, over hiring into, into that particular part of the business. Yeah. What are the things you bring up? And it's, it's a hot topic right now, just on LinkedIn and everything is this balance between quantity and quality. What's your take on that? How do you balance the two? Um, I mean, it's, it's funny because we talk about that a lot. I think that um, it depends on what you're trying to do. I think that if you don't have a lot of resources, you're going after one type of buyer. Um, you know, you should probably optimize for, for quality and then maybe do quantity on the SEO side. I think if you're trying to go after multiple types of buyers, um, like for us, our biggest problem, and this is why we're kind of pushing some of this is we're a multi-product company very early in our life cycle. You know, we're pre hundred million in revenue. Um, you know, we're, we're one of those companies that, you know, knows that they need to be multi-product to get to hundred million and beyond. Um, and that's a tough problem if you're not just going to throw money at, Hey, let's have three marketing teams. Let's have three product teams, et cetera. And so for us, like we went after quantity at a certain quality threshold of, hey, let's kind of see what happens with going after customer success professionals with this show, going after B2B SaaS with this show, going after, you know, general kind of business with this show. And then what you'll start to see with us over this year, this was the big push was, hey, we learned a ton. We had this quickest path to learning and, you know, it was two years of learning, but, you know, obviously we learned stuff in between there. And now we're kind of refining things where we're like, okay, we're going to kill this show. We're going to start this one because we know it's going to be, you know, successful based on what we're seeing. And then we're going to keep the quality bar going up now that we know how to make quantity. And I think that's something that's really missing from the quantity quality debate is, um, you know, if you talk to someone, there's always these adages of, Hey, you got to do a hundred, you know, the, what was it? The you know, photography class of the person who worked on one photo for, you know, the entire semester versus the person who shot a photo every single day, you know, the person who shot a photo every single day, they had the better photo at the end of it because they were getting reps and learning every single time. And I think that's a really, really big thing because this was so new to us and it's such a new model to, you know, the world of B2B SaaS, um, which we are, we had to like learn a ton. And I think that's what allowed us to kind of get there as long as the quality bar was over something. And now we kind of know what quality is from our perspective and we know what work is going to take for it. So now we can execute on like a more like thorough strategy, at least in our mind. I love it. It's uh, the answer I was looking for was context is key. And you like <laughs> literally, you nailed it because that's what uh, it sometimes annoys me is like when people give this one, like framework for everything. And it's, it's not, it's not that right. So um, 
to follow it up, one of the questions that I'd love to ask right now is, I know culture for you is important. I know some of your values. One of the uh, things that Peter and I talked last time he was on the show was this whole concept of feedback is not optional. Uh, so the question I have is, how do you ensure now that you guys have multiple locations, right? How do you ensure that that morale is not only maintained, but those cultural values are also like maintained, right? Given yeah. everything that's going on at the moment. Well, I think it came back. Well, yeah, at the moment adds a wrinkle, right? <laughs> so I think at the, at, at like right now, this really comes back to the fundamentals of values and culture, right? And I think that, you know, not to get very Patty McCord, but like um, the former chief talent officer at Netflix, for those who, who don't know who that is, but like, if you're not giving up on something or you're not having a trade-off with your values, like those aren't values. And if you are stressing things like be honest, be integrity, it's like, no, no, that's just, that's just like the price of getting in the door. Right. You know, that's not something that we're going to stress. We're going to stress things that are, you know, the aspirations or what we are, and we're going to like really stress them um, and, and give up on some of the, the trade-offs that, that come with that. And I think that was a really hard thing because you know, personally, I'm, I, I try to be, even though I'm a disagreeable person in like, you know, kind of conversations and, and trying to, and disagreeable does not mean I'm a jerk, um, although maybe some people disagree, but disagreeable just means like you're, you're a little more skeptical and you want to like talk through something. Well, why is it that way? That type of thing versus, you know, being super accommodating. And I think that from a more of a cultural perspective, I was super accommodating and I was like, well, yeah, maybe we need to consider this and maybe we need to consider that. And it was kind of averaging out our culture, which is, I think, what a lot of times happens with companies because you don't go, no, like, I know that this doesn't, you know, feel good, but that's not how we are, right? Like, so one of our, one of our principles is be disagreeable, think critically. And when you have someone who's coming from a corporate environment or where their first job, um, normally from a first job, it makes a lot of sense because they can kind of get in. They're like, oh, I get it. And there's no like habits that have formed. But that's really tough for people because they're all of a sudden like, whoa, there's a lot of feedback coming and it's not, you know, all negative. It's, it's you know, very constructive and it's always, well, 99% well, of the time it's presented in the right way. But it's one of those things that like we gave up like, hey, sometimes it's, it's not going to be agreeable and sometimes it's not going to be one of these things where, you know, you're, you're not going to hear feedback, right? And so I think for us, that, that really helped us when we expanded to um, not only Rosario, Argentina, which is one of, one of our offices is, um, but also Salt Lake City, where I moved to as well, because all of a sudden we had like a really good feel for, hey, when we're faced with this decision or we're faced with this problem, um, people fall back to, you know, those principles. They're like, well, in the spirit of this or in the spirit of that, um, or like, hey, we're, we're thinking through these decisions. Well, a big thing we believe is treating people like adults. Um, and if we do this, we're not treating them like adults and we should trust them with this information, right? And I think that it just took, you know, three somewhat stronger personalities in, in Facundo, myself and Peter. And then in addition to that, it just took like really reinforcing it pretty constantly um, to make sure it kind of permeated. And I think that it, it wasn't an overnight thing. I think it just was like a lot of repetition. And we probably stress some of these like principles and values a little bit more than others um, because they're a little bit more applicable. Like, you know, feedback is non-negotiable is, is a big one. And we always tell people the way you receive feedback is very negotiable because not everyone likes to receive it in the same way. Um, but the feedback is still there. And I think that's helped us a lot. Um, in the spirit of COVID, I think we kind of, um, you know, it, it, it kind of helped us a lot because, you know, we already were super transparent. We already were super communicative. Um, we do a lot of narratives and memos that we write, not like memos like, 
you know, don't do this or don't do that, but more memos of like, hey, this is how we're making this decision or this is how we're thinking about coming back and like these types of things. Um, and I think that really, really helps because we already kind of had that baked in. And I think we got lucky that we baked some of this stuff before, um, you know, COVID hit that it just kind of, you know, kept going, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. The part I love about what you just brought up is feedback is not negotiable, but how you receive it is. Uh, that, that, I think, is the crucial part uh, as I've grown older, because different people have different ticks, right, of, of how you motivate them. Totally. And for example, for me, like, if you really want to piss me off, call me out in a negative way in front of like a public group, right? Yep. Whereas for some people, like, frankly, that's how you motivate them, right? Like, that's how you get them uh, off their yeah. ass. Uh, so uh, how, do, how do you assess for this in the recruiting? Like what over or in general, like it, now that you've recruited a hundred plus people, right? Uh, at, at some point, like how do you make sure that bar is maintained from your perspective? Yeah, I think we, we didn't do really well with this, um, you know, up until maybe recently. Um, and I think it's because, you know, recruiting again, it's like, it's a little bit of a dance, right? You're, you're trying to recruit them. But you also want to make sure they're the right people. So I think it, the first step was um, we need to opt people in rather than opting people out, meaning like the default is they're not a hire. Why are they a hire? Like we need to convince ourselves of that. And, and I know that sounds like very subtle and semantic, but that's a really important mindset change, right? Um, and we were just getting so much positive and I do all the final interviews. So that helps a lot as well because I can kind of be this last damn. And what I was discovering is there was plenty of people who like, we're nice people. They just weren't great from the values that we value perspective or just like functionally de depending on the role. And so what we've done is um, we've, we've added in some, um, some different kind of thresholds or some different types of questions, right? So, and this is, if you go talk to like a people ops person at a very large company, they're like, yeah, of course you should have done this earlier, but that's kind of the nature is like, sometimes we love to reinvent things because um, we either think we know better um, or, and we don't, or, um, you know, we just have a big knowledge gap. And so I, I've started leaning on that. I'm like, oh, how do you do this at, you know, company that's four times the size of ours? Um, and you don't take everything, but you take some of it. And so we added some culture conversations and then, um, some, some of those culture conversations are tough because, you know, you don't want to make someone feel uncomfortable, but you also kind of do want to make them feel uncomfortable so that you can kind of see how they think. So sometimes I save that for, for the last interview, um, which is with me and I'll ask them and I don't want to reveal all the questions, but I'll ask them questions like, you know, you know, tell me about a time, like tell me about two of the top 10 worst moments of your life. Right. And that's not like a comfortable question. Um, there's reasons why you shouldn't ask that question, but I give a lot of leeway. Like if it's something that's super bad, like don't, don't tell me if you don't want to. And I always preface with like, Hey, these are a little more personal. They're not exactly personal questions, but they're a little more personal. Um, if you're not comfortable, like of course don't answer. Um, and that's also an out. Like if they were uncomfortable, that actually is a really positive thing if they like brought it up. Right. Um, but if they kind of go through it and, you know, they talk about it, that shows that they're open. It shows that they, you know, are, are able to be open with some of these things. And, and sometimes they give me feedback on, yeah, that was a tough question. And, you know, maybe you should ask it this way. And like, it just gives a bunch of openings, right? Because there's a little bit of like bristliness with that type of question. And then other times I'll give like a scenario, um, like something that's happened in the past that I maybe didn't handle properly, but, um, you know, is, is one of those things that's like, oh, how would you have handled this? Or how do you think about this? Um, and I don't want to get through those scenarios because there's a lot of nuance and stuff like that, but I'll go through it all and I'll be like, hey, so this is what happened. Like, you know, how would you handle that? And it's very culture-based. Like someone brought this complaint, like what would you do? Or how do you think about that? And I think those types of scenarios, it really helps like 
shape a person and how they think about things. And at ProfitWell, one of our really, really guiding, like just guiding things is truth, right? Um, and truth is rarely black and white. And um, you know, normally those black and white things are super obvious, but we sometimes think that there are certain aspects of truth that are really black and white when they're not, right? So if I put a scenario out there and I ask a ton of questions and they say, well, you know, context matters here, but based on what I know that I would do this, or I think this is the right decision or something like that, um, then I know that they can think through it. If they're just like, no, like that person should be fired or that person, you know, should be promoted or something like that. Then I'm like, well, maybe they don't actually like think, you know, through the nuance of things and stuff like that. So those are some things that we do to kind of like protect for, um, you know, some of these pieces. And then at the end, like, I'm always like, you know, what feedback do you have for me? And I always give them feedback. Um, and this is something that not a lot of people do at the end of the interview. I go, hey, here are my concerns. Um, it doesn't appear that you're X, Y, Z. Um, you know, what do you think about that? Um, and it's nicely said, but it's still a little blunt. And I think that that's a really good indicator of how they receive feedback. Um, and also like, you know, it also, I think it's just really good for an interview process because there's so many people that like, you know, you don't end up hiring and then you don't get any feedback at all. And if I can give that, you know, in that session, I can at least get them to speak to it. And maybe they'll say, yeah, I'm actually not good at that. And we're like, okay, cool. Or maybe they'll say like, oh, actually I am good at that because of X, Y, Z. So those are some things we kind of learned and, you know, it's an ongoing process. And I think that's, what's really hard about it is. Um, as long as you're getting better and better at recruiting, I think that that's, that's the goal ultimately, rather than like, how do we get great? Because I think great is going to be a big journey. A hundred percent. But you got to still strive for it, right? It's a, it's a lofty goal. Look, I, I usually love to keep these podcasts at 30 minutes, but with the content that you dry, uh, you drop and then how tactical and concise you are, it, it's, it's hard to do that. But the next part of the show is usually the lightning round. I call it the famous three. So to, to get things going, the first question is, what do you wish you had known before starting on this journey at ProfitWell? Something I wish I knew. There's a, probably a lot of things. This is the nature though of like entrepreneurs were always rationalizing like, you know, oh, it wasn't that bad. And then if you go back to that moment in time, you're like, holy cow, this was terrible. Um, so I think that the one thing I wish I knew um, was how to ask for help in a better way. Uh, I think that for me, I was very, so, so I'm in a space, like the original space we we're in pricing um, most people with pricing, they get, they hire like Simon Kutcher or McKinsey um, or these like old school consultants. And a lot of them are older, like, you know, Hey, I did pricing for 20 years in software. You should hire me to sell you a PowerPoint deck, that type of thing. And I was very, and at some points very, still very self-conscious about, um, you know, I was, I'm pretty young, um, in this space. Um, and even with my data, people still want like a lot of handholding and I'm not like a blazer wearing guy. Um, I'm like the nerd who can like communicate with you about, hey, this is why you should do this or this is why you should do that. And I think that I really struggled with, especially in, in one of my first customer meetings, um, a very prominent CMO um, in the Bay Area. Um, I start talking through the slides. I'm like, cool, we're going to walk through this and blah, blah, blah. And she just stops the meeting and goes, how old are you? Like, how long have you been doing this? And I was like, holy cow, like, okay, so that's like a thing, you know, people kind of you know, focusing on my age and things like that. But um, so I think that I, I, I wish in that context, I would have learned to ask for help because I think that context made me kind of like, oh, I can't show like my insecurity. I can't show my vulnerability. And in reality, those are the times that I should have been like, hey, so-and-so, like, I just got this feedback. Like, what do you think? What should I do? How do I hedge against that? Um, but that's a big thing is like, I think there's a lot of that, um, you know, founder insecurity, especially the first time around. And, and you know, you realize like, it's okay to call yourself a CEO. It's okay to ask for help. 
um, it's okay to be vulnerable because that's, you know, in a lot of ways, like depending on how you measure that, um, that's the only way that you like learn and get stuff done. Actually, is a, is a good way to kind of lead to the next question, which is like, what's one thing, it, it could be a person, it could be an experience, it could be a book that's really helped you along this journey. Like, what is that one thing that almost was like the light bulb moment where you're like, wow, this is, this was the experience or the person that we're training or whatever it may be that really allowed us to kind of like help me function much better as a leader. Um, two books, High Output Management by Andy Grove. I, whenever I get to plug it, I've tried to plug it because it just fundamentally changed like my mindset on some of these things. Um, I try to read it at least once a year, if not twice a year. And then Patty McCord's Powerful, which I think is now like, it was a little controversial in the beginning. Then it was really widely accepted. Now it's kind of a controversial again. Um, it's just how they did, you know, talent and recruiting at Netflix. Um, and, and they still, it's still kind of how they do it. Um, it was just a really powerful framework of like, oh, HR and recruit and people ops is not there to make people happy. It's there to make them fulfilled, but give them like really tough problems and freedom and all these other things um, versus like kind of your conception of people and culture um, elsewhere. And then if there's one person that I could like, or well, two people, just because I want to be intellectually honest with this. Um, this guy named, they're both Boston-based entrepreneurs. Um, this guy named Dave Bolter. So Dave Bolter was like, he was just my introduction to the greater tech scene. Like I wasn't in tech. I worked at Google, but that's not like startups and, and tech. Um, a lot of people at Google think they know startups and tech. And once you start working at startups, you're like, oh, I don't know anything. Um, but he was like really, really helpful because and I don't even know if like he was intentionally helpful, but he just you know, hey, you should do this. And then you should think about that. And whenever I had questions, I would ask him and I'd get breakfast with him and things like that. And he was just, you know, really, really fantastic. And the other person was this woman named Jean Hopkins, um, who's kind of like a perennial CMO out here in Boston. Um, she was a VP of marketing at HubSpot, then a CMO of a bunch of different tech firms out here. Um, but yeah, she, she was just super helpful because she just believed so much in the problems that we were solving that she would just, and, and she's not a, uh, she's not an easy person to please from a vendor perspective. And so we were just like, we got to make Gene happy. We got to make Gene happy. And, and as a result, she has been a reference, a customer for us for a really, really long time. Um, and also has just really helped us shape our products. So yeah, those, those are kind of the four things. Um, you know, the two books are probably helpful to everyone. And if you're in Boston or East coast tech, um, those two folks are really good folks to meet and talk to. Even outside of Boston, I'm going to hit them up. Thanks to you. So uh, th thanks for paying it forward. Last question. What, what is one thing that you believe to be true and a majority of people will probably disagree with you on? Oh, it's the Peter Thiel question. I, I, um, I, 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 did, I didn't create it, but it's ended up being my favorite question. So. I know. You know what's really funny about this question? I judge people so hard on their answer to this question, and I don't know <laughs> if I have a good answer. Like I judge, I've heard people ask this of other people and they'll say something like, I just believe that like college education is overrated. And I was like, that's literally what Peter Thiel talks about. And there's a bunch of other people who believe that already. Why would you say that? That doesn't make any sense. I don't know if this fits exactly the answer to your question, but there has been something I've been aggravated about like the past year um, that's gotten like so much play and so much momentum. I think we need a better conversation about remote work. I think that every time I try to have an intellectually honest conversation with someone who is all about remote work, it turns into like a religious conversation. Like we've collected data that shows that remote companies do grow slower. 
Um, I think fun, meaning b- between, let's just be very clear because I'm going to get crap for this, between one and 10 million. Um, and like, it's funny, like the same person will be like, oh my God, I love your data. I'm citing your data. Then I show them the remote data and they're like, what's the sample size on this? Are you truly comparing the right, you know, like it's like you can't trust one and then not trust the other. Like You should always be skeptical of all data. But I think that like, I'm not anti-remote. We're not a remote company. We're multi-office, which is kind of a step towards that. And I think that most of us have kind of enjoyed remote work um, through this work from home kind of phase. But I think that there are fundamental questions that we are not thinking about when it comes to remote work, especially when it comes to product. Um, It's really hard to build product in general. What happens when you don't have those moments of serendipity? And I know that remote people are like, Oh, we don't need those, or you can do those online. It's like it's it's harder. It's not it's not as easy, but no one's like honest with that. I mean, not not no one. There's plenty of people who are honest with that. But I think that again, I want to be really clear so I don't get the remote call attacking me. <laughs> I think that remote work is not as an absolute um, in the short to medium term um, than people think. I think there's some fundamental things we need to figure out around product development, um, culture. Um, and I think that like, you know, happiness and stuff, I think we figured some of those things out. Um, project management, these types of things, I think we figured those things out. And I think that there's actually a benefits to being remote, but I think that we can't have honest conversations around product development and things like that. Because every time someone tries to say, well, what about this? It's like, oh, you're anti-remote. How dare you? You're going to be you know, wrong in terms of history. And it's like, whoa, I was just trying to like talk about the pros and cons rather than like get attacked because I asked a question. So yeah, I'm going to throw that I love out it. there. I'm going to get was, crap for it. It's no, fun. you're not. It was perfect. Uh, it's been a great episode, Patrick. You've been a great friend, both you, Peter, Aaron, and the rest of the ProfitWell team. So thanks so much for your support and as well as for being a part of this community. Uh, and last question, if people want to get a, get in touch with you, what's the best way? Uh, yeah, I'm just Patrick at ProfitWell.com. Um, I post a lot on LinkedIn, um, just Patrick Campbell, ProfitWell, if you just search for it. Um, but yeah, I'm always willing to help. Um, I think, Poya, hopefully you'd, you'd, you'd agree. Um, we're big in terms of education and kind of evangelizing things. So even if you're you know, a Johnny or Jane startup or a Fortune 50 company, like, and you're like, oh, I wonder if you have data on this or you have context on this in terms of pricing or churn, just reach out to me. Um, we've probably written something on it, or if not, we know where to find it. So just here to help. Good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Pay it forward. Thanks for having that mentality. And, and as always, thanks for being a, a, a great fan. Have a good rest of your day. And again, thanks for supporting us. I will see you, brother. Bye. Helps engineers and engineering managers become great leaders. And how do they do that? Well, Plato helps you find the perfect mentor thanks to its network of experienced engineering leaders who work at the world's best tech companies. For a monthly fee, you have unlimited access to mentors who can help when you have challenging situations as a manager. Visit them at PlatoHQ.com.